we're reading Luke 17, verses 7 to 10. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? You also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Good morning. Our visitors and friends, welcome. I noticed that the scripture reading was taken from NIV. I just want to inform you that I'm using the new King James Version most of the time. But before that, I would like to share you a story. One Sunday, the teacher said, I told you last Sunday, children, that you should try to make someone happy during the week. How many of you have done so? I did, answered the boy promptly. That's nice, Johnny. What did you do? I went to see my auntie, and she's always happy when I go home. <laughs> the sermon today is about the parable of the unprofitable servant. The title of the lesson is, How is your servanthood? The parable of the unprofitable servant illustrates the attitude we should have toward our own service to God. Since we were both at the price, we are truly servants and should have the proper attitude of servitude. I prepared three main points this morning. First is the proper attitude towards self as servant, the proper attitude towards service, and the proper attitude towards the Savior. In Luke chapter 17 and verse 7, it says, And which of you having a servant? The word for servant literally means a slave, one who is owned by another. It is the Greek word dolos, meaning bond servant. During Christ's time, such a servant slave was under the complete authority of his master. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Meaning, God owns us by right of creation. When Jesus died on the cross, he not only paid the price for us. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were both at the price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Meaning, God owns us by right of redemption. God owns us by creation, redemption, and by our surrender of lives to him. God owns us all we have, even our time. 
This means we are at his disposal. He demands our total effort at all times and has every right to expect it, as he has given all, owns all, and has right to all. That is the reason why we are told to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In Luke 17, in verse 7b, it says they're plowing or tending sheep from the field. The images of plowing fields and tending sheep represent spiritual labor to which Christ called his own followers. In John 21, verse 15 to 16, it says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. The point is, if we love God and believe in him as servants, we'll do what he wants us to do. Our faith ought to be demonstrated by obedience. Now look at Luke 17 and verse 8 to 9. Picture in our imagination this servant who has just come in after spending a long and tiring day out in the hot sun tending the farm for his master. Just what was he doing, what we are called to do as laborers in the field. Plowing the field for a good harvest or tending the sheep and other animals, both are also pastoral activities for us as Christians Plowing the fields, sowing the seeds of faith, or cultivating the small plants as they grow in the life of Jesus, weeding the rows from sin and evil, tending the flock, leading the flock to bring pastures, finding springs for them to drink, watching over them so that wild animals do not snatch them, looking out for injured or lame sheep and protecting them. A marvelous description of what we are called to do in our daily ministry. The story of the unprofitable servants emphasizes the obligation of its disciple to serve the master without expectation of release or reward. His followers must give complete obedience to him, no matter what trials come upon him. Like the Lord Jesus, they must conquer their own human nature by suffering. This parable is designed to guard against the subtle danger in the servant who becomes satisfied with his work and expects that master will recognize his service with reward. Jesus impresses his disciples the difficult and continuous service he requires of them and the attitude in which their service should be given. A disciple like a slave must recognize one's proper place in relationship to the master and serve out of loyalty to the relationship and not out of expectation for the reward. 
A relationship with Christ is the result of a relationship based on grace of the master and not on the worth of the servant. Now picture the servant coming back to the main house, dirty, tired, hot, and worn out. He is ready for a good bath and cold drink and hot meal. He deserves it. But Jesus' story tells us something different. The servant day is not done. True, his field work is done, but he is called to shift from outside work to indoor work, preparing a meal and drink for his master. This is not some undue burden. Rather, he is expected of him. His life is one of service 24-7. You know, brethren, Christ expects every church member to do his duty in a mind and will unified with his. His followers must give complete obedience to him. Jesus emphasizes the kind of faith his disciples would need to obey his command. And it is written in First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5 says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. We must see the difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. When we choose to serve, we are still in charge. We decide whom we will serve and when. But when we choose to be a servant, we give up the right to be in charge. Servants must give up all rights. In reality, much of the service we perform for him is humbling and obscure by the standard of the world. A humble, obedient, serving attitude goes a long way to increasing faith. Look in Luke, Luke, uh, let us look in Luke 17 and verse 10 says, So likewise, when you have done all these things, which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Why? We should have a proper attitude towards service because no one can do more than his duty. Jesus' words surely put this idea in its proper place. What deed could I possibly do that was not something required of us? True, there are commandments that are specific in their performance. I will give you three examples. First, eat the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. Acts 20 verse 7 says, Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart, the next day spoke to them and continued this message until midnight. Be baptized. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 38, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 22, in verse 16, says, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. But most of the commandments of God are of a general nature. 
Mark chapter 12, verse 30 to 31 says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 6, 33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3, Meanwhile, praying also for us. In Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Hebrews 10.24, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. There is no way we can do more than what is required in any of these areas of serving God. The best we can do is the least which God expects. In John chapter 15 and verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. In 1 Peter 2, 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. We cannot love more than the Lord requires. There is no way then to build up any credit with God for we cannot do more than our duty. The images of plowing fields and tending sheep represent spiritual labor. But even when he was plowed his master's field or feed his sheep, the servant has merely done his duty. The only limit to the servant's duty is his master's will, saying, We are unprofitable servant. Why? Because no one can do his duty perfectly. I have wondered what the servant thought about when it was finally time for him to relax and to have supper. In Luke 17, verse 8, B, and afterward you will eat and drink. I suspect that being committed servant, he mentally retraced his day to see which of his work activities were productive and where he made mistakes and how to improve tomorrow. Someone said, we serve mystery and serve it poorly. We have done what we were obliged to do. Jesus' words don't mean that we have done everything correctly, promptly, and with great wisdom. Rather, we believe that we did our best to carry out what we were truly obliged to do, and far too often came up very short. That's how it is with us humans, fragile vessels of God's grace. There is a formula for jokes that begins... I have good news and bad news. One is supposed to respond, give the bad news first. The bad news is all of us fail in doing our duty. We can't even claim to have done that much. None of us ever reaches that plateau of discipleship upon which we can even say, I am unprofitable servant. Failure to obey God's commandments, the result is separation from God. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. In Romans 3.23 it says, For all have sinned and fall short to the glory of God. In 1 John 1.8, If we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous. No, not one. We should not sin. We do not have to sin, but we do sin. God provides us a way of escape from every temptation, but we sometimes fail to find and use it. 
In 1 Corinthians 10.13 said, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Our own failures, sins, and mistakes loom high on the horizon over the span of years. And we feel the helplessness of knowing we can turn back the clock and correct them. While our failures and mistakes are far too many to come, two dark and foreboding clouds hover in the skies above us, and there's nothing we can do to dispel them. Many seem to have the idea, yes, I make mistakes and sin, but I, I do so many good things too. But not any act of goodness could erase the guilt of sin. The Pharisee in, the, in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14, it says, pictures for us an attitude that is too often into many of us. This man prayed, God, I thank thee that I am not as the rest of men, etc., etc., etc. He considered his worth to God to be so great as to offset or make up for his sins. I'm afraid that so many try to use scales like that. And we completely missed the meaning of the word grace and our need for God's grace. The last point that I would like to discuss is we should have a proper attitude towards Savior. He does not thank the servant, does he? What does the word grace mean to us? The dictionary gives one definition, unmerited divine assistance or favor. But the Lord Jesus, without even using the word, gives the meaning in a simple illustration, the parable of the unprofitable servant. Let me read to you one more time in Luke 17, verse 7 to 10. It says, And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all these things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. The point is, God does not need any of us. But we desperately need God. We need his grace and mercy to bring us back into a right relationship with him. The Bible mentioned grace some 170 times in 159 different references. While the word is often found in the Old Testament, it was the writers of the New Testament who gave the word meaning. The Greek word used in the New Testament, caress, means favor and act which one grants to another. If there is any single word which is distinctively Christian, it is the word grace. The whole concept is framed with an undeserved quality. Something which we believers have perceived, which we could never marry. In Titus chapter 2, in verse 11, says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. We were sinners. We are in a hopeless situation. We cannot save ourselves. 
In Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Hebrews 2, 9, besides Christ, by the grace of God, might test death for everyone. We fail, but God cleanses us with the blood of his own son. We can never make up for one sin we commit. Only the blood of Christ can take away sin. We are unworthy servants, but God extends his saving grace. To us. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace that awakens us from the death of our spiritual condition, dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. We are without hope. We are wholly dependent upon God's grace. We say we are unprofitable servants because our service will always fall short of the suffering and sacrifice Jesus received while in the flesh on earth. Therefore, there is no such thing as an excess of earned credit in us, even after serving our best at what the Master requires. That's why our redemption is by grace. The only thing that can redeem us is not our work, but the work that the Lord has performed on our behalf. Someone said, there is only one thing I can place before God that is properly speaking my own, my sin. I would like to bring you back to the formula of joke, bad news and good news. The bad news is that none of us ever does even our duty. We are unprofitable servants. But the good news isn't simply that Jesus has paid the due penalty for our sin. It's more than that. It's that he lived a life of perfect obedience that makes up for our woeful failure. In conclusion, first, we should have proper attitude towards self. John Newton said, when I was here, I was sure of so many things. There are only two things of which I am sure now. One is that I am a miserable sinner, and the other that Jesus Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. Second, we should have proper attitude towards service. We have to consider that humility and faith must be developing within our lives. A servant who is humble, obedient, and grateful. I believe you remember the lines from the great hymn, Rock of Ages, that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Third, we should have proper attitude toward the Savior. Our gratitude for the grace of God should not outweigh all other motivations. You know what, brethren and friends? A bad moment for an atheist is when he feels grateful and has no one to thank. Thank you and good morning. Let's stand and sing together.